0: Hello and welcome to Science Shambles, producer Trent here. As we mentioned on last week's show, we're not doing the weekly live Q&A shows every Sunday now as uh, things slowly, slowly, slowly creep back towards uh, doing live shows and that sort of thing. So we're still going to be doing live streams uh, probably once a month, but that doesn't mean we won't be putting out a Science Shambles podcast every single Sunday. It'll be a combination of conversations we've had about new science books um little videos we're going to be making all sorts of stuff so look forward to that you can support everything we do at patreon.com slash cosmic shambles that's what helps us or enables us to be able to keep making these sorts of videos and podcasts and live streams and everything else Coming up on Monday night at 7:30 p.m. BST. We are doing a live stream with Robin and Tim Minchin to launch Robin's new book, The Importance of Being Interested. So check that out. Tickets on Sale for nine lessons as well. But today we have got a conversation between Robin and Professor Nicola Rahaney about her new book, The Social Instinct. She is a professor of evolution at UCL. So We hope you enjoy this conversation. Nicola's book is out now, so you can go and check that out. Link's in the description of the YouTube video and the description of this podcast. Hope you enjoy. Here's Robin.
1: Uh, I, no, I wanted to start off by talking about because as, as a psychologist and then a, a, a book of biology, that, that murky world. Well, first of all, let's start off with the social instinct. Why did you want to write ab- ab- about this? What was it that is, has, has drawn you to this subject as a psychologist, but also from the perspective of kind of looking at a Darwinian view of the world?
2: Um, I think now is a really good time to have a book about cooperation because I think there is... A relatively pervasive form of zero-sum thinking, um, whereby people assume that the only way to get ahead is by competing, and that looking out for yourself is the, you know, is the is the route to success, and that um, cooperating or helping others is something that is a sucker's game and is something that allows you to be exploited by other individuals. And I think for some people that, you know, the book, The Selfish Gene, even though Dawkins was very much, me and him are very much on the same page. I think for some people, the, the idea of the selfish gene has somehow germinated this view of life as being inherently competitive and that, that precludes cooperation. And in fact, that's just totally not the case. So my book describes how cooperation really created the world that we live in and how it's apparent at all levels of life, whether you think about the genes and the cells inside your body or you think about the formation of societies in nature and, of course, our own societies. And what I wanted to do was really to show that the history of life on earth is a history of cooperation and it's a history of teamwork and it's a history of collectives and to try to dispel this view in a way that zero-sum thinking and competition are somehow preordained by evolutionary theory and in fact evolution has very much favored cooperation in the past and will continue to do so in the future.
1: Now, I know that you'd, you'd pretty much finished the book by the time the pandem- pandemic began and then the the, the the lockdown. But I wondered, you know, as you watched that play out, and of course, we saw, I suppose, via social media and via the mass media, there was this, this quite fierce delineation between the, the individualism, those people who would say things like, well, why do you care about any of these things if you've been vaccinated? That bit which was, it's just about you. And then on the other side of it, we were seeing a lot of other people who were trying to work out different ways of making connect and of, uh, of of working together as a group when at the same time isolated. Did that? Did your perspective on that? Do you think that was changed by the amount of research you've done for the book?
2: Um, I think it was super interesting to suddenly be plunged into a massive social experiment in cooperation. Um, well, interesting might not be quite the right word, but there were certainly lots of elements of the pandemic which very much resonated with the kind of research that I draw on from the book and also the kind of research that I do in my, in my career. So if you think about uh, the kinds of responses that were needed to mitigate and will still be needed to mitigate the pandemic, it's essentially asking individuals to make personal sacrifices for a collective good. And we know quite a bit about the kinds of uh scenarios and incentives that can be used to try to encourage people to do that and we saw world governments you know trying these out with varying degrees of success on a on a global scale with with the pandemic I think one of the key insights for me or one of the moments of frustration in a way was what I felt was having an over-reliance on appealing to people's better nature and kind of asking nicely. Oh, it would be good if everyone could, you know, stay at home. It would be good if you could just not panic by all the toilet roll in the supermarket and maybe you could leave some pasta for other people. And you know, we know from decades of research in economic, uh, in economics and in social psychology and evolutionary psychology that simply explaining to people the nature of the dilemma they're in and saying it would be best if you all cooperated is usually not a very effective strategy and usually cooperation doesn't thrive under those circumstances and what we know is that actually you need effective institutions and you need leadership of some sort to help people arrive at the right outcome and the mutually beneficial outcome and I think for quite a long time that was missing in the very early stages of the pandemic at least and uh, and you know it took a while before at least in some countries before we started to implement more effective policies at getting people to behave in a way that would produce mutual benefits and keep everybody safe but yeah I mean I think in some ways the the idea of the social instinct has never been more apparent than at a time when we've been asked to completely put that aside and to forego our social natures and to reduce our social contacts so definitely a very interesting time to have written this book and then be able to reflect on it in the in the wake of what has happened
1: I mean it's an interesting thing to think about what whatever sometimes what your natural inclination might be in terms of empathy and altruism But then when you turn on the television and you watch some of the daytime chat shows and you open the newspaper... And you're always that that bit where suspicion, the constant feeding of be suspicious. Don't forget, someone else is going to be taking that. Don't forget, someone else is going to be doing that if you don't do that. And that's an interesting conflict between what might be, to, to some extent. I, I I know it's always dangerous to say something like innate, but, but but you know what does appear to be a a drive in you, and then that suspicion which is constantly being fed to don't trust anyone else. And that I, I find watching that battle very intriguing.
2: Yeah, and, you know, I think what you're touching on there is this idea that we, you know, for the most part, people are willing to cooperate. And obviously I'm talking in really general terms here, but most people are willing to cooperate as long as they think everybody else is doing the same. And when you start to get evidence that other people are not doing it, that's when we see what we call conditional cooperation, this strategy of, I'll do it if everyone else is doing it, but if they're not doing it, why should I do it? And I think that can be really corrosive then to producing the public good, because if you're fed evidence on the news channel of panic buying in the supermarkets then your rational response in some respects is to buy everything you know buy all of that product that you can get your hands on when you go because there's no guarantee that that will be available in the future otherwise and so that's really where we look to and we need leadership and we need institutions to help us arrive at an outcome that we would all agree was the best outcome Uh, I think Garrett Hardin um called it mutual coercion mutually agreed upon Um, but it's very difficult to get a collective an amorphous collective to arrive at those outcomes without some form of coordination or some form of, of, of leadership putting in place those rules and those institutions to help us to get to those solutions and that's what that's what our species is so good at i mean that's part and parcel of how we have become so successful on the planet is that we are able to change the rules of the games we are able to develop institutions that incentivize people to cooperate when they might otherwise be tempted to cheat or to defect and so i guess we just have to remember that we have those tools at our disposal and to use them judiciously
1: it's interesting isn't it because the the, the the positive hit you get from being helpful is something you know we we, we are fine tuned to actually you know when when you have done something where you think oh good i was really useful to that person and yet somehow again just that that fear and then that fear seems to breed you know inside you and and i don't know it's it's uh yeah I, it, it's it's a very strange battle i want to get back to your actual uh your career though which was not the direction that you necessarily expected it to go because you ended up working the field you ended up doing uh an incredible variety of of, of research into pied babblers amongst other things tell me how that came about tell me what you ex- where you initially expected to go
2: Well some probably a little bit um, not very imaginatively at the end of my university studies as an undergraduate I applied for a bunch of corporate positions and I didn't get any of them and so I was sort of wondering what I was going to do and I saw an advert I'd done my degree in natural sciences at Cambridge and I'd been for the final year I'd been in the zoology department that was what i sort of specialized in, in my, in my degree. And there was an advert on the zoology notice board that said field assistant wanted um, to work in South Africa in the Kalahari desert, helping out with pied babblers, uh, with a project on pied babblers. So at that point, I had no clue what a pied babbler was. I'd never heard of this bird before, but I thought it sounded interesting. And I hadn't been to South Africa before. So I thought that would be a good opportunity to travel. And so I applied for that field assistant position and I got it, Um, and I went out to South Africa and helped out with this project, which was based in the Kalahari Desert in the Northwest part of South Africa. Uh, And the project involved working with these highly social birds that live in very, very tight knit family groups in the desert. So they live in groups that can be as small as three individuals, but they can also range in size to be up to 14 or 15 birds. And they're normally about seven or eight birds in a group. Now they're unusual because within each group, you have one male and one female who breeds. So you have the breeding pair and everyone else in the group doesn't get to breed. And instead they have to help to raise the offspring of the breeding pair. So that arrangement is called cooperative breeding. And it's more common in harsh environments, like hence why I found myself in the desert, um, because in harsh environments, it can be very difficult for individuals to go it alone or to breed successfully as just a pair or even as, as an individual. And so you tend to often see in these harsh environments teams of of birds and and mammals. For example, at the study site I worked at was also a project running on meerkats who are also cooperative breeders like babblers are. So in these harsh environments, you tend to see the formation of these teams where individuals work together to raise offspring. And I was then, once I'd worked as a field assistant at that site for around nine months, I was invited to apply for a PhD. Uh, on the same system and that's what I did and so I spent around four and a half years traipsing around after birds in the desert and learning more about how conflict and cooperation works in this highly social society and where there really are conflicts over who is going to get to breed because obviously the subordinates the ones that aren't breeding are all hope what we call hopeful reproductives and they would every individual would like to be the breeding individual but they don't all get the chance to be that and so it's very interesting to see how those conflicts play out and how they're resolved as well.
1: As you traipsed around was there any point in which you thought oh I could be in the corporate world now or did you find <laughs> once you were out in the field you thought oh this is where I want to be this is
2: Uh, I probably I think every time I looked at my salary I probably thought I want to be in the corporate world now but as time's gone on I think I'm actually really happy that I took that career decision because I think you know at the time it was very easy to have a sense of feeling left behind by my peers and that people were moving on not just in terms of earning good salaries and things but also moving on with their personal lives and settling down and getting married and having children and meanwhile I was still living quite an itinerant life even quite late into my 20s and I think you you can sort of feel that when you're doing something which is so different to what everyone else is doing there are a few questions obviously about is this the right decision should I have done this should I have done that but now with a bit of perspective and being able to look back on how things have played out, and also now that my, you know, as for most people in science, as they progress up the, the career ladder, you become more and more chained to your office and to your desk, just like everybody else does, and I'm now really grateful, actually, that I had that opportunity to travel to lots of really interesting places while I was younger, and to, you know, to get to know these, the places that I worked in, and also the species that I worked with, and and to have, to have an experience that the living the life I have now with two young children and all that that entails I just wouldn't have the time to be able to do that and so in yeah I think in in hindsight it's something which I feel very fortunate to to have experienced but it it definitely wasn't a strategic move for me I think a lot of what's happened to me in my career has been good luck and being in the right place at the right time basically.
1: If you could go back into the field, what is the, is the one particular species that you've now kind of you've researched more on paper than actually observing that you think, I really would love to see this interaction in action?
2: most of the species that i've worked on i have spent time with in the wild so there's not many species where i have worked on them and i don't know much about what they do but perhaps ironically actually the species for which that rings most true for me is humans and so what i would find what i really wish i had time to do and what i would do now if i had the time to do it and i could and i could travel freely would be to conduct I think because humans are so variable in the societies that we live in and the the cross-cultural variability in norms and the way that cooperation is structured and the kinds of societies that people live in uh, and the conflicts that arise within those societies and how they're dealt with, all of this very, very rich variation in social life in humans, I think is something that I haven't really had been able to experience in the detail that I would like to and I think potentially if I was to go back to the field I would be very interested to do it more as an anthropologist than as a zoologist and to go and get to know humans living in different kinds of contexts and different scenarios in the way that you can get to know other animals living in different different arrangements as well
1: so you would kind of move from that darwinian into the margaret Mead uh, hmm. arena arena that. that's a, a very i mean what i find interesting there also is that idea of where the divide is between zoology and anthropology because i mean it used to be very clearly defined as anthropology is the study that that that's humans and that is what that and then now it seems there is more of a conversation about some of the complexity of what we see of societies of of, of certain animals means that to some extent people do view it as uh, anthropological studies is that fair
2: yeah and i think you know in a way that even if someone says to me what are you what kind of scientist are you i always take a bit of a deep breath and have to think like what how do i really answer this and i think that is symptomatic of the fact that the study of human behavior has become so interdisciplinary in the last 10 to 15 years that Many people that are working in this field, including me, are drawing on insights not just from psychology or so- social psychology or anthropology, but they're drawing on insights from economics, they're drawing on insights from evolutionary biology. That you know, this the, to understand human behavior, I think you have to be interdisciplinary nowadays, and in some ways, it almost then defies a tight pigeonholing when it comes to to explaining what where do you sit in this, you know, in, the, in these different academic silos, where should we put you? I find the question very difficult to answer because for me, I, I feel like the, the work that I do, it draws from from lots of those different disciplines. And I think that is the way that the study of human behavior is going increasingly now in the future as well.
1: When do you think there was a a, a a change in? I think the last time that we spoke, we talked a little bit about uh, Dr. Jane Goodall and the fact that you know her interaction and observation of the chimpanzees in 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 Gombe were uh, there were many people in academia who tried to dismiss her, and you know she she had quite a battle when she came back because to them she hadn't done the right thing she hadn't just looked at one form of behavior and said i will now be studying this she'd looked at the, all of those levels of interaction and then also the work of eugene murray which is kind of not really known until after he died the soul of the ape and living with baboons and things like that um it does seem that that human exceptionalism the the, the knocking away of that the chipping away of that is part of well what your book is about and what really the whole of this area of study it will undoubtedly is always going to keep chipping away at the idea of human exceptionalism which not everyone is that keen on
2: yeah i mean you're right that my book is very much um and i think i say this at some point explicitly we're just another animal on the tree of life and we can learn a lot more about ourselves by looking at what we have in common with other social species and that that actually doesn't only include the great apes and other primates, but it includes species that are very, very distantly removed from us on the evolutionary tree of life. Or when we think about phylogenetic relationships that are quite, you know, distant from us. But um, I do think that I don't know if I think it's controversial. I mean, to me, I think at least among my peers, most people I think are relatively accepting of the idea that of this we're just another animal narrative. And I think where, there's, where the debate ensues is, is along that fault line of when we're thinking about individual behaviors, which ones do we put above that fault line and say, this is just humans, only humans are doing this thing. And which ones? Which ones can we find examples in the animal kingdom of other species doing them? And that that working at that fault line has been something which I have done throughout my career. And that there's a sort of theme in a way to the kind of research papers that I publish, which is that uh, it, which is trying to find examples of the kinds of behaviours that we think of as being quintessentially human or uniquely human and showing that actually we see this in this other species and it might not be underpinned by the same cognition, but in, but when you look at what's going on in this behaviour, they're doing, they are doing this thing that we think of as being uniquely human. So one example of that would be teaching, for example, where we thought for a long time that that was something that only humans did. Um, and, and, increasingly now we're realizing that actually we do see examples of teaching in the non-human animal kingdom but they haven't come from the places that we've expected so they haven't come from um the chimpanzees or the gorillas or the or bonobos but they've come from ants of all places or they've come from meerkats or and they've come from pied babblers so you know we do see teaching it's obviously not teaching in a classroom like humans do but It is, if you define teaching as going out of your way to help another individual to learn something, then we see, we can find those examples in the animal kingdom. And so that's where I think the debate is, it it lies in a way, it's at that fault line. And it's, it concerns individual behaviors and the extent to which people accept evidence for a given behavior as being similar to what we see in humans.
1: Now, you mentioned ants, and there are lots of fascinating stories in terms of, well, for instance, the the, the nature of sacrifice within uh an ant colony which i just found you know that this is can you can you tell us some of these because it really is you know somebody just got all ants from around the world there are ants in many different locations in your book which which have just uh behavior which you can't help but sometimes anthropomorphize as well the kind of you know ants the 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 suicidal ants for the purpose of the survival of of the whole there's there's
2: there's loads of suicidal ants so there's one um story that i tell at the start of the book which i'll tell you but there's another species which i i haven't really given that much air time to but are also an amazing and they're called colobopsis explodens and the reason they're called that is because they have a one morph or one cast in their society it's is it developed as an exploding morph and essentially its abdomen is filled with some kind of toxic goo And if an intruder or a predator approaches the colony, then the the one job of that exploding morph is to explode itself all over this threatening presence and to disable it in the process. And so hence the name Colobopsis explodens. Were you other... need to make
1: a film with David Cronenberg. You need to definitely be an advisor on, because that way that he deals with flesh and living things and the explosive and the strange and, and what to us is, I mean, that's the thing that I find fascinating when you tell that story is we immediately think of that as absurd or extremely strange. And then the, we keep having to, I suppose, place our mind going, it's not strange. It is the way things are. It's very strange to us. And that's what I always find fascinating about whether it's discussions about black holes or whether it's discussions about exploding ants.
2: Mm -hmm. I mean, ants, there's loads of cases of ants sort of nuking themselves for the greater good. So another example is um, an ant called Phorelius pusillus that live in very hot, dry regions in Brazil. And they have their nest underground, but they forage above ground during the day. And when they come back to the nest at night, they all go into their tunnel and they go underground to the safety of the nest. But a few of them will wait at the surface and they'll wait till everybody else has gone into the nest. And at that point, they then completely conceal the nest entrance from the outside. So they drag grains of sand and dirt and things like that. And they completely conceal the entrance. Um, And in doing that, they seal their own fate because they can't survive overnight above ground. So they they make this very heroic sacrifice for the colony. And, and even then that they haven't finished because they don't want to die near the colony, because that's also a sign to a potential unwanted guest that here, you know, the nest entrance is around here somewhere where all these corpses are. So once they've made sure the nest is concealed, then they turn around and, you know, similar to um scott of the antarctic they go outside and they maybe sometime they walk off into the night and they die somewhere else so that they don't pose a threat to their their family members into their colony and you know from our human perspective i think well at least i find that example quite poignant because i think we can't help but as you said to impute some of the emotions and the inner struggle that might that we might be going through if we were to make a sacrifice like that Um, and of course we know in ants none of that cognition is going on so those ants aren't experiencing mental turmoil about whether they should sacrifice themselves or whether they you know should save themselves and They don't, they're not having a warm glow feeling of, you know, oh great, I've rescued everyone in my colony by doing this, but it's probably, it is probably entirely dictated by genes, essentially this behavior and without much cognitive input at all. But nevertheless, it is a very, it strikes us as being very heroic. And so I think it is quite interesting when we start to project what we feel we might experience emotionally in those situations to the creatures that we study and I think that's also where the potential for confusion can arise because what we see in humans and non-human species is often we'll see similar behavioral outcomes so we can see heroism in humans we can see heroism in ants but it's the cognition that underpins those different outcomes that's likely to vary and where we often will see differences between humans and other species.
1: So you can see why consciousness would not really be an advantage for most species when i mean you 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 write about the orb weaving spider for instance where you know uh, the the male may well if it appears the male has successfully managed to uh, impregnate the female spider the male then dies on the female spider thus ensuring no one else can get anywhere near and that in the same when you read about the you know the, the octopus mothers who all they do is basically the children eventually i think it's the octopus it eventually eats them uh there's uh you know all of these things go if you were actually aware you'd think i'm not doing that i've got a lot of other things to do i don't want to die you know if the first time i've had sex and then i'm immediately dead or, or what i'm gonna have children they're gonna eat me yeah that's that's the whole of your life the whole per- and and sometimes I, I suppose that's where the bleakness comes in doesn't it that so many species that we observe it underlines the fact that the purpose of life is merely to create more life.
2: Well, quite. I mean, I don't know who the quote is from, but I, I, I've i seen it quite often. But evolution doesn't care about making you happy, right? So evolution is not there for, to give us a good time or to help us find meaning in life or to make us feel happy. And in a way, you're right that you know, the big question to the big why question about life, why is life as it is on earth, is that it's it's a genetic struggle. It's it's a struggle between all the genes inside all of our bodies that are all trying to ensure their own success. And I use trying obviously in a very loose sense here. We're not we're not assuming that genes have any agency or any real wants or desires or anything like that, but they this as if language so you can think of them behaving as if they're trying to do these things and those are the most successful genes and those are the ones that are with us today
1: now i just want on the fi- final question there's so many more things that i would uh, uh, like to talk to you about uh, it because it, it is you it, There's such the 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 perpetual fascination in terms of of the again this the natural and yet what seem to be absurd behaviors of of, of of so many uh creatures and sometimes things that can seem very kind of duplicitous and mendacious and all of those things that again as we project the human side of it but Something that is, is there's a lot of Charles Darwin in, in your book as well, and and he definitely feels like a presence in terms of an influence on on your sense of, of observing nature and, and the purpose of doing it. when when, when did you first really get the, the the kind of the feeling of the hand of Darwin?
2: It's quite interesting that you pick that up because one of the one of the reviews of the book that I got quite early on um, in the Times said that in a rather, and I don't think it was a compliment, that the book had a touch of Darwinitis and definitely the tone in which that was written was not intended to be complimentary. But to me, I thought, well, is that really a problem? I mean, Darwin has consistently You know, so many of his ideas have consistently been shown to be prescient and to be right in, even if not in the details, in the general idea of what he was proposing. He actually was really, really spot on with a lot of things that we now have subsequently rediscovered or formalized since he wrote his book um, on the origin of species. And for me, probably... When I first started to think in those in that Darwinian sense and to really understand this perspective of individual level selection and and the 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 shift in worldview that comes with that rather than thinking about survival of the species or for the good of the species, but thinking about individuals as being the kind the the agents that um that try to maximize their their own success would have come early on for me in my undergraduate career when we were instructed actually not to read darwin but to read the selfish gene and obviously that is maybe the gateway drug to darwin i suppose but um yeah i mean that for me was a real uh, epiphany like i do remember really once i'd read the selfish gene thinking oh right okay this completely changes the way that you think about things and you can use the individual and in fact the gene as uh, and that and that individuals um desire to, to for success in a way or that that impulse for success as a lens to understand all the behaviors that we see on earth and that i think that's such a powerful viewpoint and that that probably for me was when i really started to become very interested in evolution in a way
1: also you quote you have my favorite darwin quote in your book which is the sight of the feathers in a peacock's tail makes me sick uh, yeah. which is always which really struck me i remember first reading that and going it just sounded so contemporary that i had to keep checking that it really was darwin and 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 not some you know late darwin impersonator in the mid 20th century
2: Well there's a wonderful resource actually online called the Darwin Correspondence Project where you can search through all of Darwin's letters and correspondence and he I mean the quote you there's no shortage of quotes from Darwin That just how he wrote he was so colourful in his writing and you could almost feel the you know his exasperation or him kind of tearing a sheet of paper off and throwing it in the bin. And he was, you know, I think he was often quite sickly and he really, he, he struggled a lot with his health and that's also really evident in his writing and how he was really feeling in that moment for him. Evolution was a very visceral thing and he really felt it. And it's really, it's, I love reading that, those letters on the Darwin Correspondence project because you, you, you can really get a sense of that feeling that 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 he was going through as well.
1: Yeah, well, I think that's something that really comes across in your writing as well. That kind of that visceral sensation of this is nature, and this is the world that we're in. This this strange world of living things. I thank you so much for joining us, Nicola. Your your book is 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 wonderful and visceral and just filled with 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 such and sometimes almost terrifying information about the uh, the strangeness of what living things do to survive
2: thanks very much robin thanks for inviting me on your show nice to speak
0: thank you very much for listening to science shambles Remember to like, rate, subscribe, review five stars, all that good stuff. You can subscribe uh, at patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles as well. That supports us and helps us out. And you get lots of extra goodies for doing so as well. Back next Sunday with another new episode of Science Shambles. Until then, have a great week. Take care. Bye for now.
1: This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.